0: Rather than that long passage that you see printed there in your bulletin, I'm going to read an alternate passage which will include some of this material but will be a little beyond it. So basically just give ear to the reading of the Word this morning. The first passage comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. The Lord says this to the serpent in the garden. I will put enmity between you And the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or strike or crush your head, and you shall bruise or snatch or snap his heel. And then moving to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, to the song. Of Hannah's prayer, the last stanza. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed, and then to chapter 17, which is the story, all 58 verses of that chapter, of David and his contest with Goliath. I'm going to read a few selections. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. And David said, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Then the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell to the ground. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. I won't ask for a show of hands, but is there anybody here that don't know this story? You do not know the story? You've never heard the story of David and Goliath? Well, generally it's like this. If you're in the secular world, it's this story of how this weak, an underarmed and underprepared, weak one, a minority perhaps, goes after the large, strong, established, prevailing powers that be and overcame. That's not the story. That's not the moral to the story, I'll tell you that. Sometimes you'll hear it preached that David is like we are, we're weak in our flesh. And we have Goliaths in our lives. That is, there are things in our lives that seem to be insurmountable in difficulties. And in these Goliaths, we are able to overcome somehow. That's not the moral to the story either, beloved. Here's the moral to the story, and it's not really a moral. This is one of the great beacon epochs of redemptive history. I read first to you what the Lord God said to the serpent when sin entered the world through the sin of Adam and Eve and how the Lord said, I will put enmity between our seed, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the story of human history is the story of that enmity, that hostility that exists between God's offspring, God's children, God's people, and those of the serpent. Jesus looked at the Pharisees of his day and he said, You are of your father, the devil, and the works of your father you will do. There is this great divide in all of human history. We see it in the flood. We see it in the Tower of Babel. We see it with Abraham's wars and struggles with Lot and others around about him. We see it in Pharaoh's treatment of God's people in Egypt. We see it in the conquest of Canaan. And now, 1,000 years, almost to the decade, before the coming of Christ, God raises a beacon and shines forth a light pointing us to that day when the head of the serpent will be crushed. This story is very real, very literal. I believe it's actually happened exactly like the Scriptures say, and there's an enormous amount of detail. That's why I didn't want to even try to read it all, is because it's just so much detail as to what takes place. But essentially what's happening here now, we have this clash between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of serpent. It it boils down to David, the shepherd boy of Israel, And Goliath, the hero, the champion of the Philistines. We've talked now for weeks about the Philistines and the Israelites in battle with each other. You know the story. But what are the stakes? Here are the stakes. If Goliath wins, then Israel will become slaves. Slaves to the Philistines. Slaves to sin. Slaves to sinners. If Goliath wins, the serpent wins. If Goliath prevails, evil prevails. Freedom, liberty are at stake. But more than that, this is an existential contest. The very existence of the seed of the woman, God's people, their very existence are in jeopardy. In fact, it is such an existential crisis that these questions are answered on the battlefield this day. Is God's covenant going to be kept? Is God's salvation going to be accomplished? Is God going to prevail over incarnated evil? in Goliath or will the Lord prevail that's the stakes of this battle Goliath is the supreme enemy of the Lord in verses 8 through 11 we find that he is a blasphemer of God he's a blasphemer of the armies of Israel he is the one, the scripture says that he came out of the ranks. He, A champion named Goliath came out of the ranks. The word literally champion means a man in the middle. He was a one in the ranks. You could have picked any man out of that army and they would have represented what Goliath represented, but he came forth because of his massive intimidating presence. And the scripture goes into a lot of detail how tall he was and all the armor he bore and, the, and he had a... A spearhead that was about the twice the size, the weight of the average sledgehammer. And on and on and on, you can read all about it. He was protected defensively, armed offensively. he was ferocious, he was defiant. He was absolutely intimidated, and the intimidating and every soldier in the army of Israel was afraid. They had all cowered in fear. Goliath was mocking God, defying the armies of God. He held disdain and detest for the little shepherd boy David. He said, what am I, a dog? that you come at me with this little boy, this little youth? He had contempt and reproach and he reviled everything that was godly. He was the embodiment. He was the full fleshed out offspring of Satan. In fact, the key thing is he was called by David twice in the text, uncircumcised. Circumcision is the sign of faith. It's the sign that a man has placed his faith in God and is believing God's Word and believing and trusting God's promises and following God's ways and walking after Him. It's the covenant sign that God gave specifically to Abraham and to Israel. Goliath was the exact opposite of that in every way. He had no faith. He was godless. He was indeed the seed of the serpent. Actually, what they had called for here this day was something that was known quite well in the ancient world, and that was the idea of single combat. Instead of everybody getting in there and butchering one another up and seeing which army could put the other one to flight or who could draw the most casualties and all the rest, they would bring out a champion, and the champions would be representative of the whole army out of which they came what we have here is a conflict a federal representation we have one man representing all the men and women of that class and category and we have another man representing all the people of that class and category in fact that's what that's what uh, Goliath called for in verse 11 he says in mean, verse 10 he says give me a man that we may fight together One man representing all. One man representing all. Everything the serpent stood for was represented by Goliath. Everything that the seed of the woman emblematically and literally stood for was represented by the shepherd boy David. This defiance had been going for 40 days. There's something about Satan who likes to take people aside and torment and tempt them for 40 days. It happened in the life of Christ and it happened here. And this conflict was really a battle of honor. It wasn't just a battle over freedom, it wasn't just a battle over existence but it was a battle of the most important thing you'll find anywhere in the text of Scripture, and that is the exalted name of God. It was the name of God, the name, the holy name of the living God that was at stake in this contest. And David represents that in chapter 17 there, verses 26 and 36. David knew what the stakes were, and he brought a zeal, for the house of the Lord. The spirit was on David here in this valley facing this giant the same as it was on the Lord when he cleansed the temple and he said, zeal for thy house hath consumed me. David didn't matter how tall he was. He didn't care about his military experience. All he knew was One day, he's playing his harp and composing psalms. And the very next morning, he's hearing the nasty, filthy, defiant words of his God being cursed and defied. And David is ready to fight. Let me tell you a little bit about David. We'll learn a lot more about David as he ascends to the throne and we study him throughout the rest of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel this spring. But Let me tell you a little bit about his background. His great-grandmother was Ruth from the book of Ruth. His great-grandfather, Ruth's husband, and you know that story well too, I'm sure, was Boaz. And Boaz stood as the prime example in the Old Testament, and we talked about it some weeks back, of the kinsman redeemer. That is the one who was the nearest of kin who was able to redeem someone out of their situation, to restore them and to buy them out of their slavery or their poverty. David had a heritage. It could be that when David was a little boy, he sat at the feet of his great-grandfather. The very embodiment of the kinsman-redeemer. No doubt he knew the story of how Ruth had from Moab, Moab had come back to Israel with her mother-in-law and how she and Boaz had gotten together and how Boaz had redeemed her and married her and restored the fortunes of that whole family. And then they had had the little... Baby boy, Obed. And Obed had sat on the lap of Naomi in the little town of Bethlehem. A woman holding a baby in the town of Bethlehem. David knew this. This was his background. This was his heritage. He knew that he was part of God's seed, God's people. He was part of redemptive history. His great-grandfather had been the prime example of the Redeemer, a picture of what Christ has done for us. That's who David is. And not not only is is Boaz a picture of of Christ, but David will be in many ways. The ideal king will be a prophetic, prophetic image, a picture of the kind of king and the kind of person his greater son will be. Even David's son, Solomon, will be in many ways a picture of the prince of peace. Of Christ himself. David stands in the middle of this, of this lineage, these offspring that are the seed of the woman, the godly people, the one that God has charged. But the most important thing about King David was not just his heritage spiritually, but it's a phrase that's used over and over and over and over and over in the book of First and 2 Samuel. The Lord was with him. And that's the key And David will even say, for the battle is the Lord's, He will give it into our hands. David was not there pretending in any way to do anything but represent the zeal and the honor of the Lord. He was not concerned about the details of the battle. He just knew that when he went after something in the power of the Lord, he conquered it, a bear, a lion, whatever it was. David just knew the Lord would be with him in that battle because the Lord was with him in all that he did. So now this great, intimidating, nasty, defiant, godless, uncircumcised, arrogant champion comes forth. And the Scripture says, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. But David said to the Philistine, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That's it right there. That's the thesis of the battle. That's the reason for the conflict. David is in the name of the Lord. He comes representing the Lord. He comes to fight that battle with whatever he may or may not. He tried on Saul's armor, couldn't even walk two steps in it. In fact, it's a, it's a comedy scene. If we were to make a movie out of this, that would be the comedy routine with David trying to get around in, in Saul's armor. Saul's tall, he's big. David was shorter. and All sorts of things. Not trained. All sorts of things. David, that wasn't David's issue. David was simply out for the glory of God, for the defense of God, the living God. He was not going to sit and listen to his God be defiled like Goliath had done it. And then we have the story of the contest. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Earlier it had said that he took his staff and five smooth stones from the brook and put him in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And now they're approaching each other. The Philistine is moving and drawing near to David. And David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. He released the smooth stone. Ballistically, pretty true. And with the precision of a shepherd boy that had used that sling many times, he hit the one place, if you'll read that whole narrative about the armor of Saul, the one place he didn't have any armor was right here. Right here. frontal lobe in the temple area. And that's where David hit him. And the language that's used is he struck the Philistine and the stone sank. And that's the words that's used in Genesis. You'll crush, you'll strike and crush the head of the serpent. And that's precisely what David did. And the last thing we read in the text, it says, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. What? (laughs) That's that's the strangest statement you'll ever see. First of all, Jerusalem was a few miles up the road and over the hill, but Jerusalem was not an Israelite town. When the Israelites conquered Canaan, they didn't conquer Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a citadel. It was a fortress, a city-state that had been there since the days of Melchizedek. Melchizedek had been the priest, king of that fortress city. Throughout all antiquity, it had been unassailable. But there was a portion of the city that was outside the wall. It wasn't within the fort, fortress, the citadel. It was outside the wall. Now, you read your history ahead, and you'll find that it wasn't long before David came and very strategically conquered that mountain fortress, and he made it his capital. And eventually he built his home there and established the city of David there, which was a large residential area right near the plateaued part of the city, which he bought. It was a threshing floor, and he bought it, and it became the building site of the temple that Solomon built. That had been the same place where Abraham had offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. But at this time, it was held by the Jebusite forces. But it says, He took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem. And that's all it tells us. And it never mentions Goliath's head again in the book of Samuel or anywhere else that I can find. It just, he took that old head and deposited it somewhere in Jerusalem. Let's follow Goliath's head to Jerusalem. As I said, there's no data, so that gives us a free reign, isn't it? (laughs) But I think we're going to get a real good idea. All four Gospels record almost verbatim this verse. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they crucified Him. That's what Matthew says. Mark. And when they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they crucified Him. Luke. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus. And the fourth gospel. And those of you who study your gospels know very seldom do you get all four gospels recording virtually verbatim the same event. And they took Jesus and He went out bearing His cross to the place called The place of the skull, which in Aramaic, not Hebrew, but in Aramaic, is Golgotha. And there they crucified him. Outside the walls of the old fortress city of Jerusalem, it was a place, it was a mount, it was a mound. And that's where Jesus hung on the cross. And hanging on that cross, He, the true seed of the woman, not just Eve, but of Mary, the virgin-born, fully human, Son of God, fully divine, was placed upon a cross in a place they called the skull. Because He was doing business. He was accomplishing salvation as He hung there and bled and died, in the economy of God, by God's reckoning and by God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge, He was placed on that cross by wicked hands to die and to shed His blood and to be a one-man representative for His people and to accomplish Redemption and salvation for any and all who will come to Him in faith and believe on Him and unite with Him with repentance and faith and follow Him in obedience. On the cross, as He hung there, His feet were down there somewhere. And beneath His feet, somewhere, was the place of the skull. And in reality, in reality, he was crushing the head of the serpent for us. For us. David foreshadowed it. Goliath foreshadowed it. But Christ fulfilled it. And it's for you. All of this complicated and wonderful, redemptive work has been done, not by you, not by me, not by even David and Saul and Samuel and all the rest, but by Christ and Christ alone. It is He to whom we must look for salvation. He alone hung upon the cross, shed the lifeblood, And even though it was painful, it was though his heel had been snatched and snapped. And I've had a little injury along the lines of feet before and it hurts. It's painful. It's crippling. But then he in turn, when the contest raged and when the contest came to an end, the serpent's head was crushed. And God through Christ has won the victory. And he bestows it upon us by grace if we, by faith, will receive it.